This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Shashank Bhargav, and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express news show. In this episode, we talk about the outcome of the recent summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the disagreements that took place between India and China. We also give you a quick update about the developments in Manipur. But first, we talk about the economy. For a while now, the government has been incentivizing the private sector in order to boost the Indian economy. The idea is that if big Indian companies like Reliance, Tata or Adani invest more in their businesses, then that will lead to more employment. And this is what the government essentially means when it says minimum government, maximum governance. Adesh jis mode mein kaam kar raha hai, usme aap sabhi bureaucrats ki bhoomi मिनिमम गवर्नमेंट मैक्सिमम गवर्नेंस की ही है आपको यह सुनिश्चित करना है कि नागरिकों के जीवन में आपका दखल कैसे कम हो नाउ द पीएम नरेंद्र मोदी लेड गवर्नमेंट हैज बीन गिविंग इंसेंटिव्स टू द प्राइवेट सेक्टर फॉर द पास्ट 9 इयर्स बट द क्वेश्चन इज हैज इट रियली वर्क्ड हैज द प्राइवेट सेक्टर एक्चुअली इन्वेस्टेड इनफ Indian Express's Udit Mishra in his recent column wrote about a study that tries to find that out. He now joins us in this segment to talk about it. Udit firstly tell us what kind of incentives has this government given to the private sector over the years? Yeah, so there were a lot of things that have been done over the last 5 years. There were uh, reforms like the goods and services tax that form, you know, sort of streamline the indirect taxation. you know the insolvency and bankruptcy code so there were some structural changes that were done the government's continued focus on uh, making india a more digitalized economy a more formal economy all of that helps bigger companies but i think perhaps some of the biggest steps were taken even more recently in 2019 the government gave a massive tax cut to corporations on the tax that they pay it was a historic tax cut and uh, the hope was that uh, because now the corporations don't have to pay as much tax they would take this money and actually invest it in the economy and that would create more jobs and uh, more economic activity on the side because there was also the covid pandemic and and those kind of problems the government also incentivized the private sector through things like the production linked uh, scheme incentive scheme which is essentially a subsidy which where the government says that we'll pay you certain amount of uh, money for what you produce so you know the government has been doing a fair amount to incentivize the private sector to come forward and really take the leading role as it were in pushing the economy forward creating jobs bringing about prosperity and with it why the need to incentivize the 
private sector so much. Would the private companies not want to invest on their own if they see a potential return? So part of the problem is that India has been going through some kind of a structural transformation, as it were, you know, in the first four decades of India's independence, we were following a planned economy model. And since 1991, we've been trying to shift that and shift away from that. And that involved greater role for the private sector and a reducing role for the government. But these things are easier said on, you know, in paper and written on paper and much more difficult to achieve on the ground because, you know, there are many ifs and buts and private sector has to be comfortable to do that, capable of doing that. So this has been part of an ongoing process since 1991, where the government has progressively tried to get the private sector to play ball, to come and invest and, you know, really take the lead. And it hasn't happened to the extent that many of the policymakers would have wanted in the past also. And the same thing continues under the current regime also. The second part of uh, this puzzle is also about the fact that India is a relatively poor economy. You know, when I say India is a relatively poor economy, which means that on paper, it would appear that we are so many people, so much population. But in terms of the capacity of that population to buy new products, to, you know, consume goods and services, that is still at a relatively low level. And that is essentially the difference between, say, a rich country and a poor country or a developing country. And as we know that private sector typically, you know, tries to make money when when the economy is doing well, when, what we essentially mean is that people are consuming more. They're buying goods and services. But if the consumption levels are not as high, then private sector would tend to hold back, you know, investments. So it's not as if nothing has happened, but it is also in relation to the fact that we have a series where private consumption has remained muted. It has not grown as much as one would want. And that is why the investment cycle has also not picked up, at least to the extent to which policymakers might want. Right. So at a time when the consumption is down, the government has been giving tax breaks to the private sector saying that, look, we know that people aren't buying enough, but we still want you to invest in your business because that will give people employment and more wages and that will boost demand. Yes. And this has been the logic that the government has followed. And there are many critics to this logic because the other option could have been for the government to say that, okay, if the businesses are not investing because people are not consuming more and people are not consuming more because their incomes are low and they don't have enough jobs, then to break this shackle, let's, as a government, either give tax breaks to the people so that they consume more and then create a business case, a genuine business case for companies to start investing. That could have also happened. But the government did not go down that path where they were giving, where they decided to give tax breaks to the common people, they decided to give tax breaks to the companies. And increasingly, it is it is uh, becoming clear that that bet doesn't seem to have paid off. Right. And in that regard, you recently wrote about a study that was released by the Bank of Baroda, which is a public sector bank. And it talked about how much private companies have actually invested. So could you talk about the study and how it tried to do that? So... Essentially, this issue is very difficult to nail down because, you know, and many of your listeners would also recall that every year, several times during the year, we hear about these investment summits, you know, a vibrant Gujarat or a 
vibrant Maharashtra or a vibrant UP kind of summits where business uh, biggies from across the world or even in the country will descend and they'll sign MOUs for trillions of rupees of uh, investments that they promise to do. But the reality is that these are all promises. These are MOUs. These are all promises. And one has to actually then figure out how much actual investment has to happen. So the Bank of Baroda study stood out because what they did was that they went to the balance sheet of uh, around 3,500 big companies and they looked at the balance sheet to figure out how much actual money have you spent towards investment. Right. So break down this balance sheet for us. What does this five-year period reveal? So what the... Bank of Baroda study has done is to look at uh, all the investments that were done by these uh, big companies from 2018 onwards and um, all the way going up to 2023, which, you know, the financial year that ended in March. And uh, they compared it to, you know, how things were in the past and to just to get a sense of what was happening in the last five years. And the first big takeaway is that Over the last five years, that is between 2018 and 2023, the total investments by these big companies into the economy was just 8 lakh crore rupees. Now, to get a perspective on 8 lakh crores as against what they promised, maybe, one has to understand how much do the companies typically promise in a year. Now, if we look at the last financial year, which is... 2023. In just that one year, the total investments promised were 30 lakh crores. So you compare, you know, something like a 30 lakh crores or a 25 lakh crores in any one particular year, those are the promises. And then you compare it to actual investments, which is just 8 lakh crores, and that is spread over five years. So that's the quantum of difference between what the promises and the actual reality of investments is uh, by the corporates. And this is a phase where a whole host of reforms have happened, right? Even by government's own claims, everything from GST to formalization to IBC to corporate tax cut to subsidies for production, everything has happened. And yet that is the kind of difference that is there between what the corporates have promised and what they've actually invested. Okay, so when we look at the absolute numbers, they're nowhere near what the private companies said they would invest. But if we just look at the 8 lakh crore rupees, how does it compare to the way India's economy has grown? Yes, so I mean, one could say that, you know, forget what they promised and just look at how much they have invested on its own, right? That number and judge that number for, you know, on its own. And if we were to do that, then the typical comparison would be how much has the economy grown? So if we look at how much the economy has grown, then that number turns out that over these five years, the nominal GDP, and we're talking about nominal terms, we're not taking away the effect of inflation here. So we're talking about nominal GDP. The nominal GDP of India grew at something like uh, 10% year on year, right? Over these five years. So you would expect that if everything is fine, then at least investment should grow by the rate at which the economy is growing. But the data is showing that this number of 8 lakh crores has happened because 
the investments actual investments have grown by less than 5 you know 4.9% so half of what the economy was growing so it's not just that the number in by itself is smaller to what the what it was promised but even in terms of if you were to compare to the the pace of the economy it has grown at almost half the pace of the economy which is to say that the investments are not keeping up even with the rate at which the economy is growing and do we have a hunch about why that might be happening why is in the private sector investing despite massive tax cuts yeah so i think the central takeaway from all of this is that the companies obviously are not feeling confident about fresh investments because they're not sure about the consumption capacity of indians so you know we go back to the old argument that people were consuming less indians were consuming less and that was a central problem and uh, what we consume in our personal capacity is you know sort of accounts for 60% of india's gdp so it's the biggest engine of growth now if that engine is not functioning then you know you cannot fault the businesses to hold back investment because they they think that you know why put in fresh capacity when people are not yet consuming enough yeah like why would coke open a new plant or reliance open a new mart when it knows that people are not willing to buy that much right now exactly so the companies need a certain threshold of consumption level before which they jump in because from their perspective they are putting in a lot of money up front and they have to be absolutely certain that all of this will sort of come back to them and they'll make profits out of it if they can make profits without investing uh, fresh capacities then they would actually want to do that and in the last 5 years data has also shown that companies have been incredibly profitable in india so it's not as if profits have gone down they've actually soared but they have held back investments because they have not been certain about the consumption levels of indians right and obviously this has a lot to do with the fact that we still have a lot of unemployment but in a scenario like this where despite the push the private sector is still not willing to invest what exactly should the government be doing yeah so i think we have stuck at a point where you know most of the investment is coming from the government so the government's initial strategy has been that they'll invest a lot themselves they will give tax breaks to the private sector they'll even give subsidies to the private sector and somehow this whole virtuous cycle will come through and you know why sort of sit in judgment let's wait see how long it takes for this whole cycle to work out as of now data shows that it hasn't happened the other way round would be for the government to sort of then incentivize consumption for example a simple way to incentivize consumption would be to bring down taxation so we should actually bring down indirect taxation if tax rates were brought down considerably then obviously there will be a hit on government finances but then the government can recoup that from charging more from the rich right and then leave a bulk of india's population with more money in their pocket and then hopefully knowing the fact that people have been holding back consumption that might spur or lead to a, a slight revival in consumption and that then creates a business a genuine business case for companies to invest new capacities because why would a company which is sort of say selling their tandoors or tawas or you know washing machines not invest more if all their commodities are getting sold so there'll be a genuine business case 
for companies to invest. And next we talk about the SEO summit. On Monday, India virtually chaired the annual leaders summit for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a multilateral grouping of 9 countries, including India, Pakistan, China, Russia, and other Central Asian countries. Now the main objective of this grouping is to enhance regional cooperation and curb terrorism and extremism in the Central and South Asian nations. And this year as well, combating terrorism took a center stage during the talks and the grouping also welcomed its newest permanent member Iran but as one would expect in a grouping involving traditional rivals and those with ongoing border disputes this year's summit also witnessed disagreements among its members in this segment indian express's associate editor shubhajit roy joins my colleague rahel philippos to talk about the meet So Shubhajit a lot was said about countering terrorism at this year's SEO summit when Prime Minister Modi remarked on cross border terrorism he almost seemed to have been taking a dig at China and Pakistan what exactly was he implying So when Prime Minister Modi he spoke he obviously targeted China and Pakistan on terrorism essentially saying that you know some countries use cross border terrorism as an instrument of their policies essentially targeting Pakistan for using terror groups in their territory to operate against India and uh, that has been India's sort of position for last several decades where it has accused Pakistan military especially ISI its spy agency of uh, you know nurturing what uh, is famously former US secretary of state Hillary Clinton had said snakes in the backyard and also uh, he said that you know countries of seo should not hesitate to criticize such nations because there can be no place for double standards on such serious matters in this context he was essentially uh, making a oblique reference to china you know china has been blocking listing of terrorists at the un security council uh, which operate from pakistan and that sort of has been a bone of contention between india and china for quite some time now and that was the reason prime minister modi he talked about no place for double standards right and apart from cross border terrorism another bone of contention that was raised by prime minister modi was the china pakistan economic corridor or cpec could you tell our listeners what exactly cpec is yeah so the china pakistan economic corridor which is part of the belt and road initiative that crosses through what india considers its integral part its territory which is pakistan occupied kashmir and this, india has been raising this issue for uh, quite some time so in that context he essentially said that you know these connectivity projects like this economic corridor should not violate the sovereignty and territorial integrity of india For those of you who may not be familiar with China's Belt and Road Initiative or BRI, it's widely considered the pet project of Chinese President Xi Jinping that aims to connect Asia, Europe and Africa. So the developing East Asia Economic Circle at one end and the developed European Economic Regions at the other. And India has long been opposed to the strategy. So Shubhajit right at the end of the summit when the New Delhi declaration was issued Prime Minister Modi refused to sign the paragraph supporting China's Belt and Road Initiative 
And this isn't the first time that has happened. India refused to sign last year's Samarkand declaration for the same reason, right? Why is India so opposed to it? Yeah, so, you know, uh, BRI, as I told you, has been a bone of contention because of, specifically because of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. So India has always opposed BRI, you know, because of the CPEC since the beginning, which started about 10 years ago. And uh, it has made its position clear at several forums, bilaterally and even in international platforms. And this was one such occasion. You correctly said in the last uh, SU summit, which was held in Samarkand in September last year, India had uh, not signed off on that paragraph where all the other countries of SEO grouping had supported the project, which is a pet project of President Xi Jinping. And India's name was not theirs, obviously, clearly showing that India dissociated with that particular project and did not lend its support. This time, it was the same. India also uh, did not sort of play along the some of the another economic development strategy, which was part of the joint statement. And uh, again, in that also, India feels that that's a very Chinese sort of construct about economic development of the region to which India does not agree with and does not sort of uh, feel that it is comfortable in signing off on that. So these are the areas where there was sort of a differences with China, which played out in the New Delhi Declaration this time. And among the other member states, is there a divide over the BRI or is India alone in opposing it? In the SEO grouping, India is the only country which, has, which is against the BRI. Although BRI projects have, had, have faced resistance, there are concerns raised by different countries on the viability of the projects, on the environmental protection, environmental sort of damage that these projects caused, or even the, you know, debt trap that these projects essentially uh, lock the countries into. But overall, conceptual-wise, you know, many countries are on board with it. And these countries in the SEO member countries have been on board the BRI initiative. Right. So if all these member states aren't necessarily on the same page, what then is the purpose of this final joint statement or declaration? So, you know, these uh, groupings essentially show that how different countries, they come on board on some issues while they might, might not agree on others. But that does not stop groupings to exist. It's like a, a group of friends. You know, you don't agree on every single issue. But you may agree on a lot of issues, but may have differences on others. And uh, what happens is there are sometimes these groupings give an opportunity to the, not just to the governments and the working levels of the government, but also the leaders to meet each other and have a sort of a understanding amongst themselves. And the channels of communication are open. This particular summit, it was a virtual uh, summit. So those side lines, the meetings on the sidelines and bilaterals could not happen. But normally, if such meetings happen, then the leaders can have a chat, which we diplomatically, we call them pull aside meetings. Basically, a leader pulls aside, pulls another leader aside and has a conversation. So this particular grouping uh, summit also took place this time. And they talked about, they had a lot of common language on terrorism, 
for example, almost uh, they all agreed on the fact that terrorism in all its manifestations should be condemned. They talked against radicalization. They, in fact, had a, a separate uh, joint statement on de-radicalization. So these are some of the areas where they, they found common ground, although they might have differences uh, at the bilateral level. And in the end, we give you an update on Manipur. Yesterday, the state government reopened schools across the state, which were closed ever since violence first erupted in Manipur on the 3rd of May between its two key ethnic groups, the dominant Metes and the Kuki tribes. Now, while attendance remained low in the schools, the news agency PTI reported that students, parents and guardians welcomed the state government's decision. Now, it's important to remember that the situation in the state is still very tense. In fact, on Monday night, the home of the Cookie National Organization spokesperson was set on fire in Manipur's Churachandpur district. This was the first time since the tension started that a Cookie leader's house was targeted in a Cookie-dominated area. In a previous episode, we had spoken to Indian Express's Tora Agarwala to understand how the conflict began. Here's a short excerpt from it. So to understand this, we have to look at how Manipur is divided geographically. Manipur is basically a valley surrounded by hills. In the valley, the majority Mite community lives. This includes the capital Imphal. So this is called the Imphal Valley. In the surrounding hills are where the tribes live. In the north are the Nagas and in the south are the Kukis. This geographical division is basically where an old ethnic fault line in the state runs. And this is between the plain-dwelling Mete community and the hill tribes. So the hills account for 90% of Manipur's area. And the valley accounts for, I mean, just 10%. But most of the population... The Metes, they live in the valley. So the valley is very densely populated. While the hills, even if it accounts for more area, it is very sparsely populated. In fact, the Metes who live in the valley account for about 60% of Manipur's population. So this geographical division also reflects the state's oldest running fault line. The tribes which live in the hills, they believe that the Metes who uh, stay in the valley, that this community wields more political, social and economic power. The hill tribes feel that they lag behind in many parameters, development, health. And they always have felt that even politically, it's the Metes who call the shots. So the cookies feel that the Mete get more money, get more seats in the state assembly and that a lot more development has been done for them. But the Metes, on the other hand, have been focused on the protections that the tribals in the state enjoy. So, like other tribal areas in the Northeast, the hills in Manipur are also protected by special constitutional provisions. So, in the case of Manipur, it's Article 371C. And as per this provision, the hill tribes of Manipur, you know, they can have uh, separate autonomous councils. They also have this provision which restricts people from the valley, the Metes, and anyone even outside that area to come and, say, settle in the hill areas or even acquire or buy property there. 
so that way the hills have been protected now the metes uh, from their perspective they feel that uh, the valley uh, which where they stay is a very small parcel of land and there are a lot of people who occupy this area they feel that while tribes from the hills can come into the valley and buy land they can settle there they have been kept away from the hills because the tribals already have protection also another point of contention is that they feel the tribals have reservation in government jobs and manipur you know is a state which has long seen insurgency so where there are very few employment opportunities so government jobs are important so the metes feel that even they need some sort of protection some sort of reservation and they also feel that the land which they occupy soon going to be taken away by people just because they don't have protection in those areas and this insecurity this concern is the reason why the metes have been demanding that they also need protection and should get reservation under the scheduled tribe category but the tribals in the state feel that this is an unreasonable demand they feel that anyway they have always lagged behind in various parameters they feel that if now the metes get st status now the metes would be able to come into the hills they'd be able to settle there they feel that the metes would encroach on the hills and rob them of the land they have and tribal communities do subsist off their land for them their land their resources have been traditionally and historically very important to them so they have very close ties with their land so they feel if the metes get the special protection whatever protection they already had the tribes already had would mean nothing because this means that you know their lands are open for other people to come and for the metes to come and settle and you know live there so i mean this did not happen overnight it was long coming it just needed a trigger and finally this tribal solidarity march which happened on may 3rd served as the trigger for it and since the tribal solidarity march which was called to protest the mete demand to be included in the st list we have seen instances of growing violence all over the state and a complete breakdown of law and order To know more about what has happened in the last two months, you can listen to our previous episodes. The links for which are in today's show notes. You were listening to Three Things by the Indian Express. Today's show was edited and mixed by Abhishek Kumar and produced by Ucha Sermon, Rahil Filipos, and me, Shashank Bhargav. If you like the show, then do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it. Share it with a friend or someone in your family. It's the best way for people to get to know about us. You can also tweet us at Express Audio and write to us at podcast at IndianExpress dot com.